Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. I'm glad that you guys are you guys are with us here today. Welcome to everyone that's joining joining online. Uh, super excited for what we're about to go into for the next few weeks, probably three weeks, maybe even more, as and how it pertains to our body and just the direction that we're moving in. So. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to get into it right away. I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, verses 10 through 14. This is going to be where we'll primarily start, and then we're actually going to move into First uh, Chronicles. Matthew 21, verses 10 through 14. And then we're going to move into the Chronicles, uh, in particular First Chronicles. We'll get there in a minute. But let me, let me just, this is really important, especially if you're a part of this body and you're listening online, those of you that are here, uh, this, this journey we're about to go on for these next three weeks is absolutely essential to, I think, where God is going to be leading us, um, how, uh, how the strategy for how we're going to accomplish our, our mission. If you've been here, you've been through Growth Track, one of the things that we've spoken about is, is our purpose for existing, which is we exist to behold Jesus and bring his kingdom. It's just that simple. That's like the heartbeat of what we do. It's to behold the Lord because in the beholding we are changed. We actually begin to look more like Jesus. And it's unto the bringing of his kingdom. And I feel that over this last season in particular, this uh, quarantine, COVID season, uh, I, I just see the hand of the Lord upon it. At least I can see for our body where God has just put us in pause. And I feel like it's because God really wants to drill deep into our very existence, like our mission statement, why we exist. I feel like God wants to highlight our mandate and really give clear strategy as to how we're going to move forward and fulfill this, this call to uh, behold the Lord and to ultimately bring his kingdom. And I feel that we speak a lot about beholding on a very personal, individualistic standpoint, which is beautiful, and we'll never stop doing that. But ultimately, there is a place where we are called to behold the Lord corporately, Corporately, and I really feel like this is, I'm telling you, we're going to, this is going to be progressive. We're going to work through this today, and it's going to be uh, just going somewhere in the next two weeks. And it's building into something where ultimately I want to get into what it means to be a house of prayer. What it means, uh, David's tabernacle, do you know that it's prophesied in Amos that the Lord will restore the tabernacle of David, not in a physical sense, but the spirit of it. It was a worship and intercessory tabernacle that has such New Testament revelation to it. And ultimately, it was prophesied in Amos that this would be the very means in which God would touch the Gentiles and the nations. It's actually quoted in, in Acts itself. And so I just feel God is really taking us on this journey it's, it's bigger than just a worship prayer movement. It's a kingdom movement, right? Th this is really important. We're unto the bringing of the kingdom, which means city transformation. Like, I just know what the Lord has spoken to us. I, I, I just, we won't move from that, that God is going to really breathe as he already is in Mastic Beach. S uh, city transformation is everything's being renewed and restored. The kingdom of God is, is just exploding. And this is important because... Our, our mission is to behold Jesus and bring his kingdom. It's not to behold Jesus and build a building. And the reason why I say that is because I'm all for a building. I'm, I'm excited. I know God has a place, but honestly, we can meet in the property owners. We can meet outside. We can meet in homes. It does not matter because the mission is unto his kingdom coming. So whatever that looks like, our meeting places, and it really, to be honest, it's irrelevant because that's never what it's been about. And so I just feel the Lord, though, really drilling, well, how, how do we see God's kingdom come? And it's in the beholding, but this is just clearer than I've ever seen it before. The, the scripture that has been on my heart is Psalm 127, which says, uh, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Right, this is really important. I think it's possible then to be laboring or building, but you're doing it in vain. It's possible to, ex to exert tremendous energy in trying to create something, but you could actually do it to a point where it's unto nothing. It's actually, it's not fruitful. There's, there's a point where it says, unless the Lord builds the house. Now, we know we build with him, but what does that mean? That means Lord has specific strategies and plans. He has, to, he has battle plans for us of how we are to move forward to see his kingdom come. And I realize everybody has different expressions of that. But if we're going to see the Lord build the house, I, I just... I feel a jealousy from the Lord in this season for us. I do. I feel like he's jealous for his fingerprints to be on this body and his alone. 
And I, I feel that in some respects, and honestly, I would take ownership of this for, for certain reasons, that there's been kind of a mixture of, yes, Lord, we want it to be you, you alone, but we're still like allowing just the, that, that worldly, uh, just, I don't know how else to put it, it's the humanistic leadership of how you grow a church. And I just feel God is jealous to say, I want to be the only one who's on this body. Do you know when we started, Pastor Crystal and I, when we had not the slightest clue of what we were doing, we just knew the Lord called us. We were leaving Teen Challenge to start a church here. That's all that we knew. And we started to meet with different pastors and people just to share what's going on and glean from them. And on three different occasions, people that really didn't fully know us, but three different occasions. I remember one is actually my grandmother's good friend. Her name was Pastor Lynn from Northport. And my grandmother, uh, she was like, She's that praying grandmother. <laughs> when she speaks, it's like the Lord. The Lord is speaking. She didn't say much, but she would just wait, listen. And so we're sharing uh, with Pastor Lynn, you know, what we feel like God's saying. And she's like, we're going through this presentation. She's listening. And at the end, she just kind of like folds our presentation, puts, puts it aside. She's like, that's great. But she just looks at us and she said, this is what the Lord is saying to me right now. And she, and she just said, the Lord is jealous. There's something, I don't know how to put it just yet. So the Lord is jealous for this to be like just you and him. He doesn't want anything to come in the way of, of how he wants this body to move. Like he just wants you to receive everything directly from him. He wants this himself to be the centerpiece of what draws people. And man, it's, it was multiple times people said, I can't shake. I feel like the Lord is saying is that do not fall into the trap of trying to like copy what other, thing, what other people are doing. Not that it's wrong, but God is saying it's going to be, there's, there's a purity that the Lord really wants for us. That's the only way I can explain it. And so it's been a little bit of a journey, but man, I really feel in this season, God has given beautiful clarity to this. And, uh, and I feel it ties deeply into the house of prayer and, and David's tabernacle. And it's going to eventually, I'll share just at the end, tie into these beholding sets that we're going to start. Where we're, where we're really going to engage in, in gathering around the presence of the Lord. And honestly, it may turn into a 24-7 thing. I don't know. I know that once we start this, I know that God is going to breathe on it. There's all different expressions for this. We're starting with one baby step, but I know that this is going to be key. And, man, it's, when you see this stuff, I think it's really going to stir your heart. So, all right, let's jump into it. Matthew 21, speaking about the house of prayer today. I'm going to just share this kind of to get us going and then give you just some introductory thoughts to the tabernacle of David from Chronicles. And that's where we'll kind of conclude. But Matthew, Matthew 21, many of you are uh, probably aware of of what's happening here. This is called Jesus' triumphal entry. It's his passion week. Uh, he's coming into his final week on earth. He's coming into Jerusalem. And uh, the crowds are crying out, Hosanna, son of David. So this is a, a, a name for Jesus. It's a messianic title. It's actually a, a prayer as well. It means save, rescue. And so it's pretty amazing. They're identifying there's something on the life of Jesus. And Jesus walks into the scene. And in verse 10, let's read this together. I want you to see this. It says, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus walks into the epicenter of religion. He walks into Jerusalem. And it says that when Jesus enters in, not just a few people, not a handful, but the whole city was stirred. They were actually disturbed by his presence. They were provoked. There was an internal upheaval that was taking place because of him who had walked into their midst. And it led them to ask probably the most important question that anyone could ask. Who is this? Like all of history is going to culminate with this question. Who is, who is Jesus? Hearts are stirred by his presence coming in. And I, I believe that we are living in an hour where people are asking this question. Like it's really exciting, I believe more than ever because of all that's happening, whether or not they verbalize it externally or it's just something internally that they're processing, because of what's happening, they're saying, who is God and who is Jesus, right? And so the, the good thing is that the right question is being asked. The issue is, is that the wrong people were responding and it was with an, uh, an incomplete response. It says the crowds responded, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. In other words, because they didn't fully grasp who Jesus was, their response was not a complete response. And as we're going to see, Jesus, I believe he actually turns to the house of God to answer that question. I believe what it's saying is, who is this? Who I am should be rightly answered in my house. 
But because there is so much alternative uh, and, and extracurricular activity taking place that's not centered on me, the house of God is not seeing me rightly, and therefore they're not defining me rightly to the world. And so what you have is you have people asking the church, who is Jesus? And say, well, he's a really good teacher. He's got some good principles you can live your life by. Jesus is a great way to start your weekend or finish off your, your weekend, however you look at it, to start or finish. Like these responses begin to come forth like Jesus, man, he was, he was an awesome man. Do you know that the world has no problem identifying Jesus as a prophet? The Muslims say Jesus is a prophet. There's no problem saying we can see that he's sent by God. The issue is, is his divinity. He's not just a prophet, guys. He is God in the flesh. He, he's, he's the visible image of the invisible God. He's Alpha and Omega. He's the chiefest among 10,000. He is the bright morning star. He is the bread of life. He is living water. And think about it. There should be that type of response coming from the church. But as we're going to see, Jesus is going to show us that it's not coming from the house of God because there needs to be reformation because they're built on all these alternative things. Are you with me? So, so to this question, who is this? We see a connection. I believe this cleansing of the temple is in response to who is this? Jesus is saying, well, here's where you should find the answer, but here's why you're not. But I'm going to come back to the center of it again. And look what it says. And Jesus, answered, uh, Jesus entered the temple. And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, what did he say? He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Wow. So here's the picture I have. Jesus comes in, there's all this money changing, there's business going on here, there's commerce. Jesus comes in, he overturns, he drives out. And the visual that I have is that after all these things are overturned and driven out, who's left in the temple? Jesus. And here is the presence of the Lord now back at the center of the temple and he says, my house, my house shall be a house of prayer. You see, what does it mean to be a house of prayer? We need our minds renewed because when I think house of prayer, I'm like, great, <laughs> I mean, that's the last thing that I want. Lord, couldn't you do anything else a little more exciting? A house of prayer, this is boring. Uh, there's just all these, these thoughts and we need our mind renewed because what we're seeing here is a house of prayer. It's not clinging to form or principles. When God tells us to be a house of prayer, he's not saying I want you to adopt a prayer language that you all can say now together. He's saying when you're a house of prayer, what it means is that I'm gonna become center of this house again. My presence is gonna be in the middle of everything that you do. He says, this is going to be a place where you commune with me, where you encounter me. Like this is what Jesus is really getting out here. Our God is not a dead God. When we say a house of prayer, maybe we've been to some boring prayer meetings. But I tell you this, it's because our thought process is wrong. We're gathering around an alive God. We're gathering around a king that is resurrected. He speaks. He moves. He's alive. And we should have great expectation that when we come to behold his face, he's going to show up and move mightily in our midst. The, the fact that God says this is going to be a house of prayer, we're going to get back to me. I want you to know, God is not, this is such good news. He's so jealous for us and for you. He's not content to be an idea. He's not content to only be a theory to you. He's not content to just be a doctrinal statement that we put on a website and that's the extent that we know of God. He says, I want to be in your midst. I want you to know me. I want to walk with you. I want you to create a habitation, a dwelling, a dwelling place for people to see me rightly and encounter me. This is where lives are changed. It means that God doesn't want you to have a secondhand relationship with him. He doesn't want you going through your pastor or another leader to find out who he is. He says, I want to engage you personally. Like this is glorious news when he says a house of prayer gets Jesus back at the center where we're fixing our eyes. My role is actually to say, just behold the lamb. <laughs> because when, look, we're going to get into this. When you don't do this, especially as leadership, then you start having pressure of trying to keep people. How do we keep them? What do we have to keep going in order for people to come back again? You know what's a lot easier? Jesus says, point to me. I'm what their hearts desire. I'm what their hearts yearn for. If you start putting me right at the center, I'll take care of all of that. Like, I'll keep them in a way you could never keep them. I'll make people come alive. I'll deal with stuff in their life where you don't even have to address it. They're already just laying it down because they're just encountering me every day. Like, this, this is the house of prayer. And Jesus, when he comes into this place, what's he doing? 
He's reforming the house, right? Scripture says judgment begins in the house of God. It says that zeal for his house consumed him. He's so zealous for the church, literally it consumed him, meaning he laid down his life. I mean, this is absolutely fascinating. And I believe that in this hour especially, that God is producing or leading us into reformation. I do, what does that mean? It means he's making changes and actually it's unto improvement. And I believe the reformation is, is that all of the side stuff that we've been prioritizing, that we've said has been a necessity, all of the shaking that we've been going through is just revealing what is a necessity, what's not. And out of this, the beauty is, is that the desire of all nations is coming forth, Jesus himself. And we're going to start to see more and more, I believe, houses of prayer where we say, man, it's all about him. This is God's definition of the church. Think about it. He doesn't say it's a house of preaching. He doesn't say it's a house of evangelism. Now let me be very clear. We know how important all these things are. We're doing it right now. We're not devaluing that by any means. But what I'm saying is this ministry of connecting and encountering God and communing is actually the first ministry. It's what gives life to every other ministry that we do. If we do not build houses of prayer, we can still preach and still evangelize, but we lack the power. We lack authority. We lack the love of the Father to do that. When Jesus comes into this house, he overturns and drives things out. I believe what this is a picture of, literally it happened, but I, so often what happens in the natural is connected to the spiritual. And I believe Jesus, the picture of Jesus driving out this, this religious, dead religious system that's built on consumerism and materialism. And here's the thing is that we can walk in our modern day church and we may not see the scene that Jesus saw, but I believe that spirit can still exist. It's the spirit of, of, of business. It's, it's, it's like a, it's business transaction. We produce a, a number of goods. We put together a package to try to sell to you in order for you to come. And I just, I feel like this is a lot of times, this is what happens. And there is just a greater, a greater approach to this. The reality is, is that crowds were here. But what was keeping the crowds was, was the business. And this is what I feel. It's like, man, we can try to keep crowds this way. Or we can say, you know what, we're going to plunge like just head first into the presence of the Lord. He's going to be at the center of it. And if crowds are here, that's great. But here's what's keeping the crowds, is that the Lord is at the center of all that we're doing. Listen, if we don't have this, you know what happens? When we start looking like that church, that this temple, before it was reformed by Jesus, this is the essence of the secularization of the church. God's no longer at the center. So what happens? Man steps into the center, and now he has humanistic methods of trying to win people. No longer is about the presence of God. Now it's how can, we, how can we come up with things to entertain and keep people. And it becomes about self-dependency, self-exaltation. And I believe God, Jesus, is we're in an hour where Jesus is saying, I'm coming back in the midst as the centerpiece of the house of God. Like I don't know about you, but this is what my heart yearns for. I want, I want to be in a body where we say, Jesus, you're the center of all that we are doing. Like, I'm a... And I'm telling you, we're going, I'm just giving you the spiritual stuff. We're going to practically where this is going. I want to just stir your hearts of like, this is Jesus' desire. I'm weary. I'm weary of emails that I received that I've signed up for in books that tell me the keys to breaking attendance barriers. I'm weary of emails and books that tell me just the perfect blend of worship in order to keep the young crowds but not offend the older folks and allow them to stay around too. I'm weary of emails that give me the secrets of how to retain visitors. Man, you could pay $20 to be entertained anywhere. People come to encounter the divine presence of the Lord. Like what we offer is what every heart yearns for. And man, we just water it down if we actually don't say, you know what, what does this look like to be a house of prayer? Like what does it look like to really make Jesus the centerpiece of everything? And, and so this last piece in the scripture, look at verse 14. It says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Well, isn't that amazing? I didn't really hear too much of this type of ministry in the temple during Jesus' time. I remember one time he, he healed a, a man that was demonically possessed. But other than that, not a tremendous amount of, of activity. And, and even so, here's what we see. The moment all this stuff gets driven out, kingdom ministry comes back. As soon as all the stuff that we've said is so necessary gets driven out and Jesus comes back to the center, guess what? People start getting healed, touched, and set free. And this is, man, this is where we're going. This is where we're moving. So listen, here become, here's, here's the big part, and we're going to shift into David, because David's really, I think, going to help us. When people ask, are we a house of prayer, or, you know, are you a house of prayer? 
I know in the past I'd say, yeah, we're a house of prayer. And what did that mean? It meant that I valued prayer. I had a positive attitude towards prayer and probably that I uh, encouraged people to have a, a healthy, quiet time with the Lord. Now, all those are really good and, and important. But when, when it talks about being a, a house of prayer, Jesus actually says this. He says, it is written. In other words, he was not speaking a revelation that they did not have access to. He says, it is written, meaning there's been a precedent that was set in the Old Testament. He says, this is not something new. This is what we've always been after. This is what I've always wanted. And once again, you guys have drifted from it. And when you look through the scripture of the Old Testament, there are a few places where you could probably highlight this aspect. But I think it's, it's most clear in the house of David, in the tabernacle of David. Have you guys ever heard of the tabernacle of David? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. There's not a lot on the tabernacle of David, and yet it's a temple and a, a, a tent that was so different than Moses's, And it was so uh, revelatory of what we have access to in the New Testament. And I believe the tabernacle of David begins to give us practical ways of how we become a house of prayer and really start centering on the presence of God. And so today I'm just going to give you some introductory thoughts on that. Next week we're going to talk about how this actually leads to God's kingdom being expanded through the worship and prayer movement. And then uh, in the week after that, we're going to connect this to Revelation 4 and 5, which is fascinating. The throne room of God ties right into what David actually set up. So turn with me to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 13. 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. And I want you guys, if you can, to turn there. Bibles, iPhones, doesn't matter. I want you to read this and stay with us. First Chronicles chapter 13, verses 3 through 4. Jesus says, my house will be a house of prayer. It is written. He says, this is something you guys already knew. This, you had access to this. And the house of David is just so, so fascinating. So much, listen, much is written about David as being a king. But most of it is actually before he was fully, uh, before Israel recognized him as king. A lot of it is he's still on the run from Saul there, there's a lot of language about David being the king, but actually uh, this is going to be his first, I want you to catch this, very important, David's first public address to the people as their official king. You follow me? So th this is really, really important. And here's, here's the quick backstory, like two seconds. The nation of Israel, you got to catch this because this parallels so well to, I believe, what we just read of what the house was doing with all of the business. And then Jesus comes in. The nation of Israel is essentially in a, in a place, I believe, of crisis because of the leadership of Saul. Saul was essentially a demonized tyrant, literally. I mean, he went off the deep end. He spent most of his leadership trying to kill David. He fought the wrong enemy. And as a result, it said he cut people off from the word of God, from the prophets of God, and ultimately from the ark or the presence of God. So when David steps in as king, you've got to understand, the nation is in upheaval. I mean, they have really already started to lose their ways, and Saul was the first king. And the question becomes, or I should say this, David comes and he rallies everyone together. It says he brings his commanders, this is verse 1 and 2. He brings the Levites, the priests of the Levite tribe. It says he calls all of Israel. I mean, this is, this is a really monumentous moment. David coming into his place as king brings all of the people together. And the question becomes, what will David do as his first political move? I mean, what should he do? A nation that is just being shaken, will David, uh, will David invest and, and expand the military? I mean, that, that sounds like something wise to do. Would, uh, would David uh, renew and reform the economic policies that they have? I mean, that would be, that would be wise to do, first thing. Would would uh, David seek out peace treaties with David, look to build infrastructure. I mean, all these things would be wise. Your first move in office is, is, is so significant, right? When a president comes to office and he brings his cabinet together, the first decision he makes, really setting the stage of where we're going, it could, it could inflict hope or fear. And so David steps on the scene. I just want you to see what is David's first move as now leading Israel? Well, let's look at verse 3. After he summons all of these people and the top officials, he says, then let us bring the ark of our God to us. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Wow. David's first 
move as king. He says there's a new king in place, and he says, here's what we're going to do, guys. They're wondering, man, what is he going to do to change the nation? And he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put the ark. We're going to put the presence of God right back in our midst. The presence of God is going to be center. The ark, see, the ark is, if you don't know it, it's representative of the presence of God. It was a wooden box overlaid with gold and cherubim, but ultimately... In the old covenant, this was the throne of God. It was the glory of God. It was the presence of God. The ark was God in his fullness in the midst of his people. What the ark was to Israel is what Jesus is to the church. And so David's plan, can you imagine this? The wisdom of God just baffles the wisdom of man. Man, we should invest here. We should do this. And David says, no, no, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put God back in our midst. David says, you want to know my political strategy? It's the presence of God. Five-year five year budget sheets and planning will never change the heart of people. David said, you want to know what we got to do? If we're going to have any hope of changing the tide of this nation, it's going to be because houses of God are going to put God back at the center. Like this is so critical for the hour that we're living in. And I just feel we're about to press into something. Oh, man, that I'm so excited for of just seeing like Jesus is central and just lives being so radically touched. Because it's, it's what everyone longs for. You know, it says this in verse 3. It says, for we did not seek in the days of Saul. Do you want to hear something amazing? Or actually, I should say it's, it's, it's sad. Is that at this point, the, the ark, when Saul was in leadership, do you know where the ark was? It was in a barn in the desert called Kirith-Jerim. Whoa, that scared me. And it was there. You know how long? It's estimated from 40 to 70 years. For 40 to 70 years, the presence of the Lord was a side issue. It was left in a barn, which means that when Saul was leading, he was leading absent of the presence of God. See, this is what we just said in the house of God before. It's having a house of God where Jesus is no longer center and therefore we've got to have business and consumerism and materialism are the ways in which we do the things of God, which just cannot work. And so Paul or um, Saul is a, is a perfect example of that humanistic leadership. And David comes in and says, no, no, no. We're going to do this completely different. The presence of God is coming back to the center of it. And he says in verse 3, let, let the, uh, Then let us bring the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. This is David's, like, definition of his life. This is the mark of David's life. The one called all to behold the one thing. The one called all to, to forsake all in order for the one thing. This is Psalm 27.4 where David says, there's one thing I've locked into. I want to know and behold the beauty of the Lord. This is Psalm 132. David says, it said about David, he said, I will not find rest until I find a resting place for God. Like this is what defines David's life is this scripture right here. And God, uh, God was deeply moved by the leadership of David. So much so that God says, my son Jesus will sit on the throne of David. Wow. What, what about David where God says, you know what, this kingdom and what's being established is so in line with my heart that when my son comes, he's going to be known as sitting on the throne of David. What was it? He's a man of the presence. It's that simple. But we complicate it. Or for all of the reasons to exalt man instead of God, everything gets shifted. And he says, man, God is coming back to the center. But I want everyone to hear this. This is, this is like so important to me. My life, in my life, I, I, I can see like David, everyone has callings and giftings here. God has given them to you. And so when I look at my life, one of the things that I, that I can see, before ever knowing God called, called me to speak, because actually I hid from that, right? In college when, when the final project was not a written project but an oral one, uh, right after the first class I went right to my uh, administration office and dropped the class. I'm like, no thank you, I'm not speaking um, so that took a long time wrestling. But one thing I saw clearly from a young age is that the Lord had called me to in places of leadership. I never asked for it, didn't always want it, but whether it was sports, whatever it was, I can look back now and see that God had placed that in me. In fact, a lot of times I either squandered it or I used it to lead people in the wrong places, right? But over the course of my life now, I realize why God has touched me, why God put that in my heart. Because this is what I was created for. Verse 3, to lead people to the presence of God. Like, this is the only thing I was made for. And it just has clicked with me more than ever in this last season. I will never be satisfied. I will never be content as long as I try to have a mixture to that. No, my heart is to lead people to the presence of the Lord. But here's the key. David says, then let us 
bring the ark of God. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. So what's he saying? David is saying, guys, this is my passion, but I can't do it alone. I, I, I can't do this on my own. And I believe what David is saying is, if we're going to do this, guys, it needs to be a unified pursuit. And I'm asking you as your shepherd, and the things that we're going to get into, I'm asking, I don't know what it will look like all the way, but I know the things we're going to start to do. And I'm saying is that it can't be one person, two people. And I know I'm saying this because I know that so many people are hungry. It has to be a, a collection of us locking arms and saying we're committed to this one thing. Like we're committed to the presence of God. We're willing to forsake everything. We're willing to lay down our plans. We're willing to die to the things we thought we should be doing for this right here. Like we are all in invested into this. I want to surround myself and build with people who are not content just to have good programs and good classes. Like is there anyone with me? Is there anyone who something beats in the heart and says I want more than that? Like I, I want to surround myself with, with people that... You can just see it. It's like, they've got it too. You're just as crazy as that guy. There's something about you where all that you want is, is him and all that you want is, is for people to experience him. And you say, man, I want nothing more. I want people that are obsessed with the manifest presence of the Lord. And we'll just say, man, like I am, I am all, all into this. And so David, David lays out, I wanted you to catch that because David says, guys, we're going to put the presence back in the center. We're going to pursue the presence. But now the question is, how? And this is where we actually get to get really practical. How does David do this? Well, turn with me to 1 Chronicles 15. This will be the last portion of scripture I share. But I just want to leave you with a few points on this. 1 Chronicles 15 verses 1 and 2. By the way, if you want to understand the tabernacle of David, uh, chapter 13 to 16 has a lot of language. But also, um, it really 1 Chronicles speaks a lot up to verse uh, chapter 28. There's a book by a man by the name of Kevin Connor, which is a great book that I'm actually reading right now. There's just not a lot on it. And it's one of those things where you ever have those hidden pictures? You ever look at those and you can't see anything? And then you get a little bit closer and you just watch for a while and you're like, oh my goodness, there's a beautiful picture emerging. I feel like the tabernacle of David is like that in the, in the scriptures. It's all there and it's so profound. But it takes you like really setting attention to it and all of a sudden it just clicks. You're like, wow, this is powerful what God was doing through David. So the question is, David says, we're going to pursue the presence of God, but how does he do it? Well, look what he says in verse 1 and 2. David built houses for himself in the city of David. Ready? And he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it, a tabernacle. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. So just stay with me. A few things to give you a big picture that will lead us into the next few weeks. How does, how does David, how does David pursue the presence of God? Here's what he does. He takes the ark. He's going to bring it to Jerusalem. He's going to put it on Mount Zion, which is in Jerusalem. It's right next to his headquarters. And he's going to put it in a tent. And it says this, it says he, he placed it in a tent, and here's what's different. When we think of tabernacles, we usually always think of the tabernacle of Moses. Now, this is where this is so beautiful. The tabernacle of Moses, if you remember it, it had an outer courts. It had the holy place, and then it had a, a veil, which then was the holy of holies, and that's where the ark was. The, high, the priest could go into the holy place, but only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, right? And only one day of year. David's home at Yom Kippur. But you know what David's tabernacle was? He had this tent on Mount Zion, and in the middle was the ark, the presence of God, and there was no partitions. There was no veil. There was no outer courts. It is such a picture and revelation of what we would have access to in the New Testament because Jesus would ultimately tear the veil. He puts the ark right in the middle. Listen, David, uh, uh, David wasn't breaking the law the Spirit was compelling David to give a preview on earth of what we'd have access to when Jesus would come and rip this veil open. He was, he was locking into something that God was revealing to him. And so he sets up this tabernacle with the presence of, the God, presence of God in the middle. There's no partition. And then it says that he calls the priests to be the ones to really lead the way. And I want you to hear this. The priests lead the charge. And it says, what does it say in verse 3? 
It says that there, or verse 2, at the end it says that they were chosen to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. Do you know what the role of the Levites were? To minister to the Lord forever. It's, it's widely believed that at this point, the Levites, because the ark of the, of the covenant was put in a barn, that they were all doing ordinary other jobs. And they had forsaken their actually first calling, which was to minister to the Lord. Do you know who we are in the new covenant? Do you know that not by blood, but by the spirit, the scripture says we have been brought in as a royal priesthood? Do you know Revelation 1, 5, uh, Revelation 1, 6 says that God bought us by his blood so that we would be kings and priests? Do you know what your primary role, your primary purpose for existence is? To minister to the Lord forever. This is first commandment. We always go right into ministering to others. You don't do that until you first minister to his heart. It's from that place where God sends you out to minister to others. And I feel that because of just the way Jesus hasn't been central in the church, that we as Levites, we've been focusing on all these other things. And the Lord is calling out the Levitical identity in us to start ministering to his heart again. To start really seeking his face. Listen, we're called to work at all different jobs. That's not, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is our primary purpose is actually to minister to the Lord. You move his heart. Your, your ministry provokes him. He, he loves it. He desires it. Do you know that when the, when the ark came into Jerusalem, David did something fascinating. Just a little bit later in this chapter, it says that David had his kingly garments on. You know what he did? He took them off. And he put on priestly garments. And it says he begins to dance and sing like an animal. Not like an animal, but that's the picture I have. He goes crazy. He's leading the charge. His wife was so upset and bitter by this. She says, come on, act like a king. He says, I, I will become only more undignified before the presence of the Lord. But listen to me, this is what's so important is that David was giving a prophetic picture for us. He's saying when he takes off his kingly garments put on the priest garments he's saying there's only one king and all of us have access to him do you understand it wasn't only shocking what David did it would have been offensive for him to put on priestly garments because he wasn't from that lineage but he is giving a picture for us saying guys the Lord had just showed him something this is what it's going to look like everyone's going to have access to the Lord like this and we're going to sing before him we're going to dance we're going to be filled with joy like this this is the heart of of the house of prayer the ministry, to minister to the Lord, we have to understand this though. Ministry is, it's a labor. Ministry is a labor. And I think a lot of times this can really confuse us when it comes to us worshiping God, pursuing God in study and prayer. Because, you know, we just did Feeding Hope, right? Feeding Hope was a ministry of outreach. But do you think that the people that were doing it just showed up on a Saturday and just hoped that food got there somehow? And that volunteers just showed up? No, when something's a ministry, it requires resources, planning, time. When it calls us to minister to the Lord, a lot of times we don't prioritize it like we should, and so it becomes something that if we have time, we'll do it. And this is where we're going. We're going to say ministering to the Lord is going to be our primary ministry, and therefore we're going to make time for it. We're going to invest resources to it. We're going to dedicate people to be on, on sets to continually bless his heart day and night because this is what it means to minister to him. I'm telling you, this is beautiful when we go into next week of how the kingdom of God is released through the worship and prayer movement. David, what did it say about David talking about ministering? David, you know what it said? It said David prepared a place. It doesn't say that David just one day walked on a mountain and just saw a tent there and the ark in the middle. David prepared, meaning this wasn't a haphazard thing. He didn't stumble upon his tabernacle. David put attention to this. He put time, resources, as we're about to see even more. I, I believe in my heart that our primary purpose as a church, and I got this a little bit backwards starting off. I thought when you come somewhere, you like go out and start just evangelizing, doing all this stuff. I believe our first priority is actually to prepare a place for people to encounter the Lord. Our first job is actually to create a habitation where God and people are able to connect. Now listen, I get that in the new covenant, we are the tabernacle of God. I'm speaking on a corporate level now, that our job is to create space, time, invest in this so that we give room for God himself to meet with people and that's where lives are changed. Do you know what David did? 
David, so, so David has a tabernacle that has the presence of the Lord. There's no veil. You know what he does? He hires 4,000 musicians. He hires 288 singers. He hires 4,000 gatekeepers. David employs a staff of nearly 10,000. Just start to calculate the cost of payroll alone. The point is, is that when David says there's one thing I'm after, it's not lip service. He says, I will give up everything for this. I mean, can you imagine his officials saying, we've got to extend this kingdom that we have. And David saying, no, we're actually going to first invest everything into creating a place for people to encounter the Lord. So he, he sets up all of these worshipers. And then it says, the scriptures, you can read this for yourself. It says that they worship day and night. Now there's some debate. Do you take that literal? There's different expressions of how to have a, a tabernacle of David. But ultimately we know something, that it was continuous, especially with the number of people that he hired. Certainly there were sets of people continually before the Lord ministering to him. It was David along with three others. So there was four key leaders he had 24 leaders underneath that, and then he had these thousands of people. And David set it up day and night, and it says for 33 years, 33 years, they worshiped in the presence of the Lord, offering up sacrifices, not blood animals anymore, but now they were offering up with their lips. And this is the way that David ruled and expanded God's kingdom while he was king on earth. This was at the heartbeat of his, of his reign. Right next to his government structure was this house of God where there was perpetual, unceasing worship and prayer coming forth. Can you guys picture that? Where did David get this idea? Did David walk down the street and just have a good idea and say, wait a minute, we should put the ark in a tent and we should set up all these musicians. Where did he get this idea? Well, I'm going to leave you a little bit on, uh, 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 what do you call that? Um, looking forward to what's to come. Because I'm not going to get into the fullness of this, but when we go to Revelation 4 and 5, it's fascinating. The way that David set up the tabernacle is exactly what we see in the throne room of God in Revelation 4 and 5. The way the leadership structure is set up, in other words, God gave David insight into what the kingdom of heaven is like. And David put it on earth. And it was, this is when Jesus prays that I pray that heaven be on earth. Like this is the foundation right here. It's, it's this worshiping prayer movement. And it's so fascinating to see that God gave insight to David to understand this. And so David set up all these musicians. They worshiped day and night. And this became absolutely essential to David's leadership. Do you know that nearly 70 to some say up to 80% of the Psalms that David wrote were in this tabernacle? Now, picture this, because I want you to catch what God's about to do through this house. The Psalms that we read today, thousands of years later, that we have read and sung, that have inflamed hearts with passion to seek the face of God. Do you think that these men fully grasped when they set this thing up and God said, do it this way, that they understood the effect they would have on generations? They didn't have the slightest idea. But man, this is what happened. The Psalms that we read today... They were written in this house of worship. Do you know that 1 Chronicles 25 says that the primary leaders of this movement, it was David and three other guys. Do you know it says that they prophesied with their instruments? You ever read that? It says they prophesied with their harps, with their, their cymbals. Now check this out. This is to me even more fascinating. They wrote all these psalms, right? They, David had a scribe writing these songs as songs were being birthed in this house of worship. As he's writing these psalms, do you know how many of the psalms testify to Jesus? Do you know how many of the psalms that talk about King David actually also refer to King Jesus? Which means as they're singing these songs, they don't even realize that they're actually prophesying about the Messiah who would come. God revealed the deep things to them and they probably didn't even grasp it in its fullness. I believe the more we start beholding the presence of the Lord like this, we're going to see songs and man, worship that's coming forth that is literally going to prophesy over what God is doing in this land. Like th this is just so, so beautiful. So I'll finish here. David, David, this was so central to his leadership that he actually commanded, he commanded kings that followed him to follow this type of worship. And so when you look in the scriptures, you will find how oftentimes there's reference to worshiping like in the days of David. It's Davidic worship. And here's what's so amazing, and I'm going to share these more next week. But do you know that in the Old Testament, there are seven revivals? Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah, Jehoiada, 
Ezra, Nehemiah. These were all revivals. People of God lost way and their hearts were revived. Do you know what was the common theme in all these revivals? You know what happened every single time? The priests, the kings, called the priests, the Levites, to come back around the ark, the presence of the Lord, and he called them to reinstate Davidic worship from the days that he had his tabernacle. And every time they went back to Davidic worship, guess what happened? People's hearts began to change, revival came back to the land again. Seven times this happened. I believe in my heart that as we engage in this, we are going to see, like I just know the Lord has said, this is the way. I sound like the Mandalorian. This is the way. <laughs> like really, and God has set it up where I feel like things that we were doing, they're going to come back, but they're being shut down for a period so that I feel that we can really get into a rhythm of these beholding sets and, and really come into um, an awareness of like how transformative these things are. David knew. Ray, you could put, uh, if you could put something on, Ray, if he's here. If not, it's okay. David knew that he wasn't just singing songs. Do you know that David penned Psalm 22.3? And it says in that, it says that God enthrones the praises of his people. See, David knew something bigger. He says, man, we're not just singing songs. David knew the worship and prayer movement was actually unto a kingdom movement. He understood that when songs start going forth and praise starts being lifted up, that in some way God comes and inhabits that. There's something about the rule and reign of God, like being invited into places where we are worshiping in this way. And do you know that David's, David's kingdom, it prospered, it flourished. I mean, his kingdom was, was like no other. Solomon got to step into what David had really paved the way for. And again, do you know what was the driving force of David's ruling and reigning? is the fact that he had 24-7 worship prayer going. 24-7 worship prayer. They had victories. They saw prosperity in the land. What did David do? David first built up a military? No. David said, we're gonna get God back in the midst. We're gonna get God back in the midst. And he said, but I can't do this alone, guys. He said, I'm asking for a, a whole body, a nation to come alongside. Now, here's the beauty. We don't have to have thousands of people. I don't care if, if we start with, I don't care if it's just the worshipers in these beholding sets. I want everyone to come, but I know this. The power is not in just how many. It's in who we're connecting with. But I pray that you would engage in this. And I pray that you would really find a rhythm in this. And I promise you this. We're starting next Friday at 7 p.m. But I know the Lord is going to breathe on this. And I know that more sets are going to rise up real fast. It may be multiple sets every day. It may be something 24-7 that eventually comes from this. But there's going to be perpetual worship and praise that comes from this house. God's going to give us songs. He's going to give us battle strategy. We're going to come in before the face of God and say, what do we do? And he's going to release strategy to us. And it's not going to be the ways of man. And he gave promises, and people have confirmed it to us, that we would see incredible things of God in this town. And listen to me. Do not be discouraged. Elijah looked and saw a fist in the sky. And his servant said, there's really nothing. He says, all I see is a fist. And Elijah says, we've got it. There's the rain right there. I know you just see a small fist, but I know the Lord has promised rain. I don't need to see anything else. He says, go tell people the rains are coming. And I'm telling you, there's going to be small things. We've seen it, but there's going to be more increase and increase and increase. But I'm asking you, we've got to prepare a place for this. Listen, no matter what happens in the future, let's, let's go out on this side and say, you know what, we gave everything for the Lord. We pursued his presence like, we, like the only way we know how. And let the chips fall may, may, where they may. But I believe God is going to do something beautiful in this. And so we're going to set these sets up next Friday. Again, we're going to bring new sets in right away because we have limited space inside. Right now, because of even what's going on, we're probably capped at 30 people because you can't go more than double. So if you're interested in coming next Friday, um, you can reach out to us, email, Facebook message. You can just show up. Uh, I just don't want anyone running the risk of coming and it's, and it's filled. So reach out so we can have a, a reservation. If not, come. But listen, I promise you, it's going to be live stream as well. We're going to be live streaming these if you can't come in person. But I promise you, there's going to be more and more and more of these. You guys with me? Do you feel the Lord in this? 
I really, really sense the Lord in this. The house of prayer, Jesus at the center. So I wanna just pray for us, a little bit different. I'm not gonna pray for anyone specifically, but just for us as a house. So just catch like the heart of David and that corporately we'd run in this together. So why don't you just, you, you, you position yourself however you want. Father, you are so faithful, so faithful. And I thank you for your jealousy for this house. I thank you, Lord. You are jealous for this house. You are jealous for your name to be lifted high in this house. And Lord, we, we, we thank you for the pause that has taken place. And we acknowledge that you are speaking. And we're coming before you as a body. And we're saying, Lord, we desire to obey. We desire to lead like David. And I pray, God, that you would just move upon hearts, myself, everyone here. God, I pray that you would just help us to press into this. Help us to take time to behold you, to worship you, to intercede. God, I pray you would give wisdom to us of how this will look in the near future. I pray right now, I call out uh, just the, the Levitical identity in every person here that knows you. Lord, that they would just have a revelation that they were created to minister to you first. I pray you would just uh, call forth giftings, musical giftings of worship come forth, giftings of prayer and intercession come forth. Lord, I pray that as we prepare a place in just a small step, God, I pray that you would open up doors, that we could have more, more times of gathering, more and more and more. And I pray, Lord, that people would truly encounter you. I pray that our, our ways would not be rooted in humanism, but I pray you would be known as God at the center. I pray, Lord, I speak over this house that it would be known as the house in Ezekiel. The Lord is there. That, Lord, even if they don't know who leads worship, if, even if they don't know who speaks, even if they don't know the name of the church, they know one thing, the Lord is there. People recognize that the Lord is there. And because of that, I'm changing. And things in this environment are changing, and this community is changing. So we yield these upcoming weeks, especially, God, as we continue to dive into this, give us revelation in our own study that we would have such a passion, such a passion for a tabernacle of David, Lord. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.